today we are going to continue our studies in the book of Revelation. We move to chapter 6. Uh, last week we uh, looked at the preparation for the opening of the seven seals, and today we will get into the uh, first six seals that are open. So let me read over chapter 6, and I'll read it in its entirety. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a, a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was, was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened <clears throat> the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was Death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they, uh, they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on, uh, on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while, a little while longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened uh, the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. The fig tree sheds its, its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, 
and who can stand. Now that shows the whole trajectory of the content of the six seals, especially the first six seals. Uh, one of the, the points that Dennis Johnson makes, and we see this in the cycle of visions going from the seals to the trumpets to the bowls, that the seventh, after the sixth seal, sixth bowl, sixth trumpet, there is almost like a reset button that, that begins all over again and it brings everything into consummation. What I want to do is begin with some preliminary thoughts on the this uh, first cycle of visions, and the first cycle of vision has to do uh, visions has to do with the content contained behind each of the first uh, first six seals. Uh, so some preliminary thoughts, and I want to begin with uh, Greg Beal, who makes the point that in the opening chapters, Jesus is already portrayed as reigning over the kings of the earth. And we've pointed this out on a number of occasions. Chapter 1, uh, verse 5 in particular, where Jesus is seen as seated over the kings, all of the kings of the earth. And what we'll see in especially the this cycle, this first cycle of visions concerning, um, concerning the content behind the seals, what we see is that Jesus himself, and this is also paralleled in the cycle of visions concerning the bowls or the trumpets and then eventually the bowls. The point is that Jesus is reigning and he reigns over the, the, the kings of the earth and his reign extends over the situations of suffering that are experienced even by Christians. And this is brought home, especially in, um, uh, in, in chapter 6 here, when we see the response of the, the cries of those who have, been, who have already uh, been martyred. So Jesus' reign, and, and one of the reasons this stands out is because everything that is unleashed in, those, um, in, in the first cycle of visions, all of the horsemen are sent out by the Lamb. So this is him demonstrating his purposes, as we've pointed out on a number of occasions, his purposes in human and redemptive history moving towards a twofold climax, the judgment of the wicked and the reward of the righteous. Now that being the case, the second preliminary point to be noted here is that the disasters and the cosmic disorders that uh, that are unveiled here emanate from the Lamb himself. And as we just noted, they are moving towards a climactic event, and that event is more or less captured and summarized uh, after the pouring out of the seventh bowl of wrath. But these things are, are presented not necessarily in linear or chronological order. And we'll see this especially when we begin to, to look at the, um, the, the, the four horsemen, which are usually called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But, uh, and, and Greg Bill also is helpful here because he makes the point that rather than seeing these as, okay, this happens and then this happens, the, the, the more clear understanding of uh, the content of these of these uh, seals with the horsemen is that they happen simultaneously. 
In fact, I would argue that not only do they happen simultaneously, but they, hand, they, they happen simultaneously and in a reoccur reoccurring manner. Everything that is portrayed leading up to that final uh, display of consummate judgment and consummate reward, not only is it, is it um, simultaneous, but it's continuous. So you can, point to at, you can point to various points in human history where the things that are portrayed here actually happen. And you can look at it as happening again and again and again. And we'll, again, we'll, we'll see this more clearly when we get to uh, the four horsemen themselves. But a third preliminary point that should be made, and especially as it relates to um, the cycle concerning the four horsemen, there is an intentional Old Testament prophetic backdrop to the imagery here, and particularly to uh, the prophecies of, um, of, of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, Zechariah sees four horses, similar in terms of color, and they are attached to chariots, and the chariots are described there, those horses and their chariots are described as the spirits who have been dispersed into the four corners of the earth, and their responsibility is to bring judgment against the enemies of God's people. And in a similar fashion, that's what we see with these uh, horsemen, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But we can't lose sight of the fact that until the final and consummate act of judgment, the events that occur within the created order will also affect the people of God. So let's look then at the opening uh, of this cycle of visions concerning the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now you notice that each of the cycles, each of the seals, are uh, as, as they are prepared to be opened, the opening, I should say, of the seals is preceded by one of the four living angels that does two things. He summons John to come, to come and see. And then we see that it, what is dispensed by the, the lamb himself uh, or under the, the orders of the lamb is each of the four horsemen. And then we, it, it's brought to conclusion. So John is called out. Um, he's called out to witness um, what, is, uh, what is about to occur. So let's look at the horsemen themselves. In um, going back to chapter 6, in verse, one, verse 2 it says, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So on the first horse, the white horse, now some people have uh, confused the white horse here with a white horse associated with Christ later, but this is not, this is not Christ, uh, this is not a reference to Christ. Uh, the point here is that what is allowed and dispensed by the Lamb are secular human forces that will conquer and seek to conquer. 
So this is really a portrayal of the rise and fall of empires. The, the obvious imagery has to do with um, national and military power being exerted. Uh, for the first century audience, they would have certainly had in mind the Roman Empire. Rome itself was a small city, but the empire was far greater than the city because they had a vast military. And the military was always seeking to expand the boundaries or the borders of the empire. Of course, we know that later in, in history, we have, other, or actually prior to them, you had, you had Alexander the Great, who attempted to conquer the entire world. Later, you would have people like Napoleon Bonaparte, who would seek to conquer the whole world. So the white horse is an image of, of the military and political entities that would seek to conquer and dominate the world. And you can even take it into the 20th century. Some have even made reference to uh, Hitler's Third Reich as an attempt to conquer the entire world. And, and there have been others who have marched the stage of human history with the effort of conquering the whole world. So the first horse, the first seal, unveils the horse, the white horse, who is given a bow and a crown. And I want to, you know, emphasize here, he's given the bow and he's given the crown. It doesn't mean that he's right, and it doesn't mean that he is affirmed. But who is it that gives him the bow and the crown? Well, it's the lamb. It's the lamb who has the right to unveil the purposes of God. It's the lamb who is seated over all of the kings of the earth. So there is nothing that will be unveiled in these seals and even in the next two cycles of visions that is outside of the power and the authority and the will of the Lamb. He sends forth, and it reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar, after he had been driven mad for a period of time and he was restored to his senses, and he makes this wonderful acknowledgement to God that you are the sovereign Lord over all. You, you bring kings and kingdoms down, and you also raise them up. So it's the Lamb that sends forth, and it's not just an individual, but he sends forth a series of individuals whose intent it is to conquer. The second image is that of the red horse. Again, let's go back to the scriptures. Beginning in verse um, 3, it says, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. The summons is to John. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Once again, we have to look at uh, the reality that the rider on this horse is first off granted permission. Who is the one that grants the permission? It would be the lamb. And then we are told that he has been given permission uh, to take peace from the earth and 
he has also been given a great sword. Now there's similarity to his task and the task of the rider on the first horse. But the difference is this, the rider on the first horse, the imagery is intentional milit uh, militaristic and national uh, or nationalistic in that he's going as a conquering warrior representing a nation and so it's all about the domination uh, through military uh, conquest. Whereas the rider on the red horse has been given permission to, to take peace from the earth and notice the, the description, so that people, not nations, should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So if the rider on the first horse represents Christ's permission to allow nations to try to conquer and, and conquer the world, then the rider on the second horse is Christ giving permission for social upheavals and destructions within the earth. He is removing peace from the earth. This needs to be buttressed and contextualized. Buttressed in what we know and what we talked about previously um, in our studies, that the earth as we know it is under a curse. And part of the curse is not only friction within the created order, but also friction within the among image bearers within the created order. That friction and that tension between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman is not just religious conflict, but human conflict. Remember, we've talked in the past about the consequences of the fall. In the fall, we are first of all separated from God. So there's horizontal disconnect or vertical disconnection. But also in the fall, we're separated horizontally from one another. That separation, which is a consequence of Adam's sinful act, is part of the curse. And the reason it's part of the curse is because we have been created for two-dimensional fellowship. We have been created to be in fellowship with God the Father or the triune God, and we've been created to be in fellowship horizontally with one another. Sin has brought disorder where there was intended order. So not only is it a matter of nations rising up against nations, which is portrayed in the first horse or rider, or the first rider on, on the white horse, but it's also manifest in more, in, in more individual pockets of contention so that, uh, as Jesus says, I have come to bring uh, separation between mother and daughter and father and son. And he's speaking of the judgment that he has come to bring to the earth, which is manifest in the disruption of horizontal relationships individually as well as nationally, which is one of the reasons you'll hear me re return to this over and over again. Please do not think that there is a nation that is righteous. There is no 
Christian nation. The Christian nation is the church of Jesus Christ. That is a nation within itself. So our position on earth is really as, as, as ambassadors. We are the representatives of a foreign nation, which is the kingdom of God, which he, he has established in the earth, and it will be consummated. But no other geopolitical entity represents a Christian nation. So this is not about a good nation versus bad nations. All nations that are outside of the kingdom of God are part of the Whore of Babylon, which will be revealed later. But the church, which is the kingdom of God, is spread. The visible church is spread throughout all of the nations of the world. And within those nations, there's always conflict, nation with, against nation and individuals against individuals. The permission and the, the authority has been granted according to the sovereign purposes of the triune God. The third, um, the third horseman, or the third seal, is revealed in verse 5. It says, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now, the black horse, which is given a pair of scales, announces exorbitant prices for wheat and barley and oil and why? Now remember what we said. It's not that the the first uh, that the white horse will come, and then he uh, there will be war, and then the the second horseman or the red horse will come, and then there will be rioting in the streets, and then the the third horse will come. No, they are revealed separately, but the actions and the consequences are simultaneous. So while there are nations rising and seeking to overthrow other nations, there is also trouble in the streets. There, there is personal conflict, whether it's in regions or tribal or whether it's, you know, as we see presently with the disturbances, uh, social uh, protesting and so forth. It is not just the protests. Don't get me wrong. Don't. I don't want to be misunderstood as saying protesting is wrong. But what is wrong and what is a consequence of the fall are the, the actions of destruction and um, violence against people for whatever reason, even if it's not organized in terms of the military operating on behalf of the nation trying to conquer another nation. So these disputes <clears throat> that we see in our horizontal relationships and the, the, the actual military conquest come at a cost. And the cost is there is economic disorder because of this and because of that. So it's not this and then that. No, these are offshoots of one another. 
So the third horseman, the, uh, the rider on the black horse, is demonstrating the economic and, in a sense, we'll see later in chapters, uh, later um, with, with, the next, uh, with the next seal, that there is probably a health consequence to this as well. So certainly this is the economic consequence. Um, famine. Famine is when there is a shortage of food. And because of the shortage of food, there is uh, the escalation or the inflation of prices, which obviously has an economic uh, consequence. So the black horse is given a pair of scales to kind of weigh what's left uh, of the natural resources within the earth. And then he announces these exorbitant prices, which obviously are the result of war and local disturbances. Then we come to the fourth, um, the fourth seal. And beginning in verse 7, it says, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death and Hades. Hades, referring to the grave. Uh, death and Death and uh, was, was the rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts on the earth. So the pale horse, the rider on the pale horse, represents death. And this death and the grave are the consequence of the first three seals. And there's disorder. The tendency is to look at, to, uh, to try to finger, to, to point out, um, when will this happen? When will this happen? And when will this happen? They have happened. And they have continued to happen. And they are presently happening. You know, we see war. We see um, factions, internal conflict that are not necessarily national wars. They could be civil wars where the people in a given area are fighting for territory, fighting for whatever reason, not necessarily to expand their, their nation, but for whatever reason, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's in certain African nations. I remember being in Libya, uh, Liberia, where there was civil war. And the civil war was about who's in charge. Uh, we've seen this also in South Africa. They had a very famous civil war, and it was over a number of issues. So the consequence of national wars, as well as personal uprisings, and tribal disputes, and local disputes, and ethnic disputes, is that it will have an impact economically. And this brings about, um, it brings about famine, it brings about disease. I was reading one writer and they made the correlation to events that took place in the 5th century, 6th century, uh, the bubonic plague that, that rocked Europe at, uh, at, at, a, at a later point in history than this. But the point being that the pale horse, the rider on the pale horse, is really 
the consequence of all of the upheavals that have been described thus far in the first three um, in the first three seals. Well, that brings us to the fifth seal, and we see in uh, beginning in verse nine, it says, "When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, and they cried out with a loud voice." O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then we're told they were given uh, a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed uh, as they themselves had been. A couple of things to note here. Number one, this certainly brings to mind what we've said before, that all of the events that are recorded in the first three uh, seals demonstrated by the first three riders, the rider on the white horse, the rider on the red horse, and the rider on the black horse, will impact all human beings, including Christians. So remember, they have been given their permission the riders on these horses have been given their, their permission and their assignment by the Lamb. And so this, uh, this fifth seal indicates that Christians themselves will experience the consequences of these first three seals. A second thing to note is some of the things that are revealed, some of the manifestations, of the conquering, some of the manifestation of the uh, personal struggles, the the more, uh, if it's not national, as we saw with this, uh, the first horse, then in the second horse it speaks of removing the peace. Some of that removal of peace and some of the national conquering will be intentional efforts against the Lamb. Um, I've mentioned in the past the conflicts that we've seen uh, as being a part of the Rafiki Foundation. In, we have uh, orphanages in 10 different countries. And in all of those countries, there's a very strong Christian presence, but especially in places like Nigeria um, and also Uganda to some extent, the divide between Christian and Muslim is almost 50-50. In, in Nigeria, I believe it is 50-50 that you have an equal amount of, of those who profess to be Christian of different denominations and stripes versus those who are, are uh, Muslim. And much of the activity against, uh, or much of the internal strife within the nation of Nigeria is Christians against Muslims. Muslims overthrowing Christian villages and then some instances Christians seeking to avenge. But the point being, even though we can't say that all of the conquering of the one who's represented by the white horse will be intentionally aimed against the people of God, some of it will. And we can't say that all of the, the strife among people portrayed 
in the rider on the second horse will all be Christian. Uh, it'll be Christians against non-Christians, but some of it will. Not all of it, but some of it will. That being the case, Christians are equally affected whether the attacks are against them or not because of their faith, but they will all equally be affected economically. So whether or not the war that is uh, at any given moment is an intentional religious war trying to wipe out Christianity from the earth, and I don't think that is ever the case. That's certainly not what's revealed in the book of Revelation, that there will be an effort to just wipe out Christianity off the face of the earth. No, there will be subtle and not so subtle challenges to the Christian faith. It will be, there will be part of those challenges, as we saw with the individual letters, will be how we define our faith. Do we define our faith through the lens of the culture or do we define our faith through our union with Christ? Those who define themselves according to the lens of the culture will see themselves as being strong when they're actually weak because they're defining themselves by the wrong standard. But the point that we're seeing here is that Christians will be affected either intentionally or unintentionally by the consequences of the outpouring of what or what's seen and unveiled in the first three um, riders on, on the horses. So, but notice also a third observation here concerning the Christians who are suffering, and we've noted this um, at the outset of our studies, that Dennis Johnson makes the point that the question that's raised by the, by the saints who have already lost their lives, uh, who have already been martyred, is how long before we're being avenged. And he makes the point that that, in essence, is really the reason for the book, in broader terms, that Christians who know their, uh, their position in Christ, because of their suffering and because of their being martyred, want to know how long. And so the book of Revelation is given in a sense to kind of calm them as they um, as 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 the lamb moves the events of human history towards a climactic point. But the other thing that's uh, that's attached to this question: How long before we are avenged? This takes us back to the imagery of Zechariah, with the horse and, the horsemen and the chariots portrayed. In Zechariah 6, the purpose of those horsemen and those chariots is to avenge the people of God. So the world is under attack because of their treatment of the people of God. It just so happens what, what John fleshes out here is that even as God is bringing vengeance in a temporal sense, to the enemies in preparation for the ultimate and final and eternal condemnation of the wicked, the righteous will suffer. And so, therefore, part of the response to uh, the question of the martyrs is when they say, how long, O sovereign Lord, uh, who is holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the answer that's given 
They're told that, first off, they are given, each one is given a white robe, and they're told to rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants. And in that instance, and I think you can understand it from a twofold perspective, their fellow servants, broadly speaking, are all of those that God has chosen to save through Christ. More specifically, he says, until their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed and they themselves as they themselves had been. So not only, so in the most immediate sense, there's more of you going to die. But ultimately, all of this has its terminating point when all of the elect, are brought to saving knowledge of Christ and God himself has brought a, term, a point of termination for human history as we know it, leading us into eternity. Eternal ble uh, blessedness for those who belong to the Lamb and eternal condemnation for those who don't. But here's the, the sixth and final thing that we want to look at and that is the sixth seal. The sixth seal, which is unveiled in verse 12. Beginning in verse 12, he says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. And as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And right away I'm thinking of images from Isaiah, um, but in, in other places of, of the Old Testament prophets, being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks and, the, and of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? I think the, the, the proper way to see this is that if the first four seals point to the events that will take place in a cyclical manner, they are recurring, there's always someone trying to conquer in the name of national expansion or imperialism. There's always a nation looking to overtake and overthrow the world. Secondly, there's always inner strife and turmoil, whether it's in neighborhoods, whether it's in communities, whether it's ethnic group against ethnic group, there's always secondary conflict among humans. Thirdly, the consequence of that world domination and the consequence, one of the consequences of all of the factions and the infighting, tribal and, and so forth, is seen in the economy 
and also the loss of resources so that there is a rise of sickness and there is economic collapse here and there as people are fighting against one another. And then what's what we're reminded, and, and so there's death, there's death that, that, that results from, from both the military conquests as well as the tribal uh, and, and, and other factions that are non, necess not necessarily political or, uh, or military. So the consequence of this is sickness and death and, and um, negative effects in the economy. But the other thing that we see is Christians are also targeted at times. But even when Christians are not the target, Christians will be affected by these things. So all of that is what's re reoccurring. This is what's taking place at the time of John's writing, and it is, it's about to get worse, and that's part of the warning that there will be others that will die in the same manner that the martyrs have died. So all of that's progressive, and it's continuing. But then we see that on top of all of these horizontal disturbances that one could say that are man-made, part of the curse of the fall is that the whole created order, the cosmos, is itself under the curse so that Paul describes it as the creation yearning, groaning like a woman in labor, in travail. So the final thing that leads to the consummate judgment of the wicked and the consummate reward of the righteous is this cosmic, cataclysmic event. So we're not talking about wars now. We're not talking about the collapsing market. We're talking about disturbances within the created order. Um, planetary issues that, that man has no control over. Now we've seen it, and I do believe that the language here is, is, is intentional in that it's, it's portraying something that is actual, but it's also, also symbolic in a sense. In other words, God is not going to destroy the earth, but rather he's going to purge it. So we've seen this portrayed in the flood in, that's recorded in uh, the book of Genesis. But more importantly, we see it in the crucifixion of Christ, where it's described as becoming unnaturally dark, that the sun was covered, or the moon was, uh, was covered in blood. So what's portrayed is this, this, and in fact, it says there was a great earthquake because it was, God was judging Christ in the same way that he will judge all of the wicked in the day of the Lord. So obviously there is disorder, there is destruction, there is chaos that is triggered by the wrath of the Lamb. And notice what it says, he who sits on the throne and the Lamb. In other words, this is God judging the earth through his son. But he's not going to destroy the earth. He is going to purge the earth 
because what is portrayed also in uh, the book of Revelation is a new earth, new in the sense that it will be rid of all of that which defiles it and all of the wicked will know, uh, none of the wicked will be present because God will renew the earth for the enjoyment of those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So the sixth seal reveals the cosmic disorder that is outside of human control. So even if we were able to stop wars, even if we're able to get along for a moment, all of that's patchwork because God is moving time and human history towards a climactic event. Now what we've seen here in this first cycle of visions, the cycle of the opening of the seals, will be repeated with different details and different emphases in the cycle of the trumpets and then the bowls of wrath. The other thing that should be noted is this interim period between the opening of the sixth and the seventh seal which is also parallel between the uh, unveiling of what's uh, the, the sixth and the seventh trumpet and then also the sixth and the seventh uh, bowl of wrath. But that's what we have, the four horsemen of the apocalypse with imagery that goes back to the Old Testament portraying the will and the intent of the Lamb as difficult as it may be for us to conceive that it is the will of the triune God for the destructions and the disturbances that we see within the created order for his own purposes as a part of the curse that has resulted from the fall. Redemption is in the Son. Redemption, and when I say in the Son, I mean in the Lamb the Lamb of God who was slain since before the foundation of the world. So what we see is God bringing temporal judgment that will culminate in eternal judgment, even as he brings salvation from, uh, from within the created order. He will save some, all, of, all men have sinned and all are guilty before God and God has chosen to save some through the person and work of his, of his only begotten son. So those who are saved will be saved eternally even as we experience the evidence of his wrath until its consummation. I hope that's not too confusing. We're not trying to go into all of the different theories and all of the different uh, interpretations of these events. So we're trying to move in a straightforward fashion to understand what God is doing within his created order as we await the second coming of our Savior. Uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Our God and our Father, we come to you again in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, thanking you for the gift of life and all that comes with it, and especially thanking, thanking you for newness of life that you have given us in Christ. We pray that we have been clear in the, and careful in the handling of your word, and that we understand that the things that are uncomfortable to us and things that are beyond our ability to comprehend 
as we see events taking place in time and space. None of this is beyond your, your knowledge. In fact, these things occur according to your own purpose. So give us a fuller and a more solid understanding of who we are in Christ and the security and the comfort that we have even as we experience the reality of living in a cursed creation. Thank you for redemption in your son. We pray that you would continue to strengthen your people, both at home and abroad, in all of the places, because you've called us from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Strengthen your people for your service and your glory until our Savior returns. And we ask this in his name. Amen.